This is The Cop Shop, the series from Energy Voice Out Loud in paid partnership with NatWest. We're leading the global energy conversation as we dive into the most important climate summit in history and the role of green finance in ensuring the planet can collectively reach its vital emissions reduction targets. Hello, I'm Alistair Thomas, and I will kick us off by introducing my co-host, James Close, Head of Climate Change at NatWest. It has been a while. James, how are you? Pretty decisive Six Nations results. <laughs> Very well indeed. Thanks, Alistair. And I'm getting over that particular <laughs> result, but uh, hopefully the rest of the tournament will go a bit better. Well, look, no, it's a solid result against Italy as well, of course. But uh, but yeah, no, uh, we'll see we'll see how it goes. I mean, Scotland always tries to buy we'll buy into the hype with Scotland, and then we always end up uh, kicking ourselves. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> and for this episode, we are joined by Ben Guest, who heads up the new energy division at Gresham House and also runs the Energy Storage Fund. Welcome, Ben. Are you another man who enjoys his rugby or more of a a football kind of guy? No, I'm more, I enjoy the Six Nations, at least when we're winning. Yeah. Um, uh, so, Ben, we'll just kind of get underway by, by way of introduction, really. I mean, we are in, as, as we talk right now, obviously, we are in a cost of living crisis. Um, our reliance on fossil fuels has a, a pretty significant role within that. And, and Gresham House and the work you're doing is helping to build up a technology that that can help us kind of wane off of that. Can you tell us a bit more about what you're up to? Uh, absolutely. Thanks, Alistair. Essentially, as we all know, and hence the, the title of this podcast, is, is, to, is, is in the context of uh, heading towards net zero in 2050. To do that, obviously, we've got to roll out a huge amount of renewables. Uh, we need to see a transition, not just to renewables within the electricity sector, but see the electricity sector actually dominate how we consume energy as that can be decarbonized while obviously consuming petrol and gas cannot in itself be decarbonized. You can scrub it, but it's not efficient. So um, essentially moving towards renewables and, and what we call electrifying everything or all forms of consumption of energy um, is, is probably the most efficient way and certainly the direction of travel. However, um, when you introduce intermittent renewables, you have the challenge of intermittency, and especially in the UK as a function of our weather and as a function of the technologies we've chosen because of the resource we have, most of all wind. So it creates a very choppy output, if you like, of, of electricity supply. To deal with that, you clearly need something. Um, that something is more generically called flexibility, but more specifically, energy storage is the obvious way to achieve that. And we have seen that opportunity uh, about six years, six, seven years ago now in terms of our very first involvement in that space, commercially speaking. And it was um, dating uh, before I joined Gresham House and then joined Gresham House in 2017 through the sale of the business I was running at the time. And we've launched the Energy Storage Fund in 2018 to really take it to the next level in terms of acquiring a seed portfolio and then not looking back in terms of building the, uh, the correct amount of batteries to deal with the challenge and um, just a couple of seconds on that you know hmm. I remember back in uh, the early days of my involvement in renewables in 2008-9-10 people saying that yeah, renewables were a great thing but we wouldn't be able to have more than 15 to 20 percent of our electricity coming from uh, renewables because of the intermittency and how on earth you deal with it of course batteries have become cost effective and that's uh, enabled that and, and thank goodness it has hmm. But the amount of energy storage that we need is still lagging a long way behind. But I'll, I'll, I'll draw breath there and uh, 
hopefully that's a useful uh, starting point. It absolutely is, yes. So, I mean, in, in terms of um, growing your pipeline of these kinds of projects, I just want to bring James in here. I mean, in the financial institutions, has there been much backing, maybe from, from your perspective? Firstly, uh, Ben, has it been relatively easy to raise funds to, to help that? And, and what kind of role has, has NatWest had in supporting? It's been a journey. Hmm. Um, back in 2017, 18, raising funds for these sorts of projects was very difficult. Hmm. People didn't naturally understand what batteries did, uh, whether they, they would last the lifetime of the project, um, how they degraded, whether there are alternative technologies, whether the returns were there, uh, and dealing with the how the revenues were generated in terms of the um, merchant nature of them as well. So the long-term contracts were, were, were few and far between. Fast forward to last year, if you like, and the track record that we've managed to build up has given people confidence that the business model is there, that the route to market is there, that revenue conversion is coming, that the operational performance of the projects is good, and that has clearly unlocked interest in equi from equity investors, but of course also from um, debt investors, including NatWest, which is a, a, a great milestone for us, a really, really important milestone for us, because ultimately our aim is to be as competitive as we can, and that's through a combination of scale and correct capital structure, and uh, delighted to have closed that transaction back in September. Mm. Yeah, indeed. And, and James, just to, to get your thoughts on this uh, particular technology, I mean, there's, there's so much going on uh, right now with the energy transition. I mean, I suppose it's probably difficult to pick and choose the right ones to to give some backing to, but, but clearly NatWest has, has elected to put this into uh, into focus and, and, and all the better for it. Well, absolutely, Alistair. And it's great to be having this conversation with Ben as well, because as we've talked before in these podcasts, we've got to figure out what the new system is going to look like, the new energy system and how the money is going to flow towards it. And if we keep financing the things that we've always financed, we won't create the headroom in our balance sheet to finance the things that we need to finance. So I think our collaboration with Gresham has been a really good example of us thinking hard about how we're going to uh, assess credit risk around what effectively is a new asset class. And as a result of that, I think we've uh, we've recognised the importance that, that uh, battery storage plays in the future energy system, and, and we want to be a key player in that. And our work with Gresham is just one example, and we're working with uh, others as well. And it's also really interesting to start to see the likes of Glencore coming into British Vault, which was announced just today, putting in uh, money into that in, in equity, of course, which is different from the debt that we bring. But mobilizing the capital to create that storage and then thinking about how it links up, not just with electric vehicles, but also with uh, UK industrial policy as well. Uh, and also the grid and balancing the grid and national grid have been very active in this area as well. So it is a, one of those topics that we all have to collaborate around and figure out the new models to get that money moving and to mobilize it for what is going to be an important part of the transition. Yeah, and you mentioned that your start of the answer there. I mean, talking about credit risking relative, relatively uh, nascent green technologies, I'm, I'm aware that Ben just talked about the fact they've been on this for a good seven or so years. But trying to you know credit risk these kinds of, of technologies, you, you may or may not know how they go. I mean, that, I'm assuming that's still something that you have to kind of deal with on a pretty much a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, there's so much going on right now. Yeah, well, we, we, we look at each transaction in its own rights. We think about how it's going to enable us to get our balance sheet to where it needs to be to hit our 2030 target. 
Um, and we uh, look at uh, the creditworthiness and through the series of counterparties and the growth potential that uh, many of these projects have. And of course, some of them are still quite a long way pre-revenue. Mm. Um, I think the other thing that really helps us here is to see government backing as well. And people like the National Infrastructure Bank can play a really important role in helping de-risk some of these investments and sending a strong signal that they are going to be viable in the medium to long term. And Ben, obviously, you you mentioned um, about the, the intermittency, I suppose, of, of renewables and how this is going to kind of help. I mean, yeah. fr- from my own perspective, I mean, we've had reports in the past or, or you know, somebody saying, for example, uh, talking in Scotland, today we produced, let's say, 100% of our energy needs via renewables, but you know that won't necessarily be the case uh, constantly. Is is this the intermittency of renewable energy well understood? And, and the context of this opportunity with battery storage, is that is that pretty well understood at this stage? Um, not just in, I guess, financial uh, community, but uh, the, ener- the wider kind of public as well. I mean, or is there more we could be doing on that front? I, I think we've got a good handle on it. And, and I don't think it's... You know, rocket science, it's, it's relatively complicated, but it's not rocket science. Um, it's a matter of really understanding the generation profile of uh, renewables as a function of the technology that, that you've installed and understanding how that changes as you deploy more of it. The interplay between that and the rest of the generation system, the challenges for national grid and the balancing mechanism. And and just bringing it all together in terms of just whether whether the the system can be balanced with with energy storage and a combination of other measures, and I think that last bit is probably uh, a pretty critical one and an area of concern. But you can map this out because we are dealing with you know repeating weather patterns, even though you get extremes. So you can map it out in different scenarios. Yeah, the good news, I think, is that we do have a solution that will work. Mm. We do have some challenges still, and we can talk about it or, or, or leave it for another time. But um, the long duration energy storage topic that people talk about is a missing piece in in that batteries won't solve that. You know, the sort of 500 hours or so of poor wind generation, which will show up when we're relying on wind for anywhere between 70 and 80% of our power, will be a challenging period, which I think can only be solved right now with gas and carbon capture or something along those lines. You know, some people might prefer hydrogen. I, I, I don't think that's the cost competitive solution. That's a different topic. But essentially, there will need to be a plug that fills that hole. But other than that, we have a complete solution and there is a solution for the remainder. And it's and it's not a big, big problem. The, the technology exists today to solve it. So I think we can, can map this out quite effectively. Yeah. So just talking about, I guess, the next in a few years for you, you talked about some of the challenges, but clearly from what you're describing there, this is this is a piece of a, a puzzle as part of a kind of a wider integrated energy system. It's not perhaps the silver bullet, if you like, but uh, That's right. is the next few years kind of looking at kind of a, a proving ground for this technology, or maybe you'd argue it's already kind of proven, but what, what are you looking at in terms of the challenges ahead and how we uh, deploy this as effectively as possible? Good question. I mean, I, I think it's we're just on a rollout process now. I, I You know, it's sort of a on an upward trajectory in terms of the penetration of the renewables and the technology. I, I can't see any major structural challenges that you know such as we need subsidies or there's a technology breakthrough required or you know if anything i i would say um and i've sa- said as much to to various policymakers it's like don't touch it <laughs> it's it's going okay you know we've got 
We've got a transition which um, has introduced some challenges um, for you know as as reflected in the pricing environments, not linked to where gas is today. That's a geopolitical issue, but in, in terms of where peak prices were in September in unusually low wind circumstances, which has led to reactions at national grid uh, in terms of the latest capacity market auction, which just cleared from the T minus one auction. I don't know if you follow that, where um, every asset that was in the auction got a contract. So usually that clears at a very low price because it's a quick little infill for the next year where national grid might have miscalculated the amount they needed. This time they've taken the decision to actually take as much as they can to make sure there are no issues. So really filling the gap for where batteries are not yet. So what we need is allow the batteries to be deployed to compensate for the gradual um, exiting left, if you like, of CCGTs, not just as a source of base load, but also as a source of flexibility and the main source of flexibility. It's a possibly a little less well-known fact than it ought to be that effectively the, the gas fleet, the, the main base load gas fleet is what's providing most of the reserve and flexibility for the system today. And so we need to make sure that there are no knee-jerk reactions, whether it's governments choosing to nationalize the infrastructure or making other knee-jerk reactions as a result of uh, something that might have shown up, or dare I say, some of the uh, stumbles as a result of the pace of this transition. Because there are going to be, the biggest challenges are basically going to be in terms of what we've seen already, you know, sort of periods of high prices or very volatile prices or not enough build and, and too fast an exit of gas or or, or something else. But um, if, if it's managed well and allowed to unfold, what's going on now with the further benefits of further cost reductions uh, of these naturally evolving technologies which are enjoying a, a cost curve, we're, we're, we're in a pretty good place in terms of transitioning to a final zero carbon scenario with with a stable system in due course. And you mentioned the, the, the gas situation and, and, as you say, a geopolitical issue, but, uh, and not wanting any knee-jerk reactions, um, mm. but I do, want, I do want to bring it up since we, we are in this position and we are on an energy podcast. I mean, we have seen, uh, obviously, this, this huge reliance we have on gas brought to the fore uh, as economies kind of recover from lockdown. And, and clearly, we have the situation going on with, with Russia and the Ukraine um, and and. You know, oil and gas companies are obviously enjoying uh, huge profits these days versus the 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 issues we've had over the past kind of couple of years. Um, James, with 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 all of that kind of going on, does that help kind of galvanise you from your perspective in trying to find these technologies, such as perhaps what like Ben has on offer, um, to help try to find some solutions here? Yeah, I, I can't help but think of the. Uh Last conversation we had, Alistair, when we were at the COP with Octopus Energy, and we got very excited about the reconfiguration of the grid and the relationship for communities between homes, houses, and uh, and cars. And uh, I think that when you start to envision that, you start to see a future that uh, can just be far more attractive than relying on the international price of gas and being a, effectively a hostage to it. Because... Hmm. Renewable energy doesn't give you a bill. I mean, it, it, obviously, you've got the capital cost associated with it, but the running cost is very, very small compared to hydrocarbons. Uh, and I think that it's really interesting to hear Ben uh, say about the importance of scaling up batteries within the system. And I think the National Grid have got an, an objective of getting uh, 13 gigawatts of battery storage on the grid by 2030. 
and we're at currently maybe 1.6, 1.7 gigawatts. So this, this, the scope for growth is enormous. And when you link it to homes and uh, cars and community-based activities uh, and microgrids, you can come up with something that's just completely different. And I think from our point of view as a bank, we're really interested to see how we can finance that. And we're really excited at, at, at seeing how the liquidity starts to build as we get to a critical mass in some of these areas, particularly on the energy storage and the battery side of things. So it's an exciting area to be part of at the moment, and uh, we, we see great opportunity. And obviously, with the kind of large-scale battery storage, this may, be, may or may not um, refer to what I'm about to ask, but clearly, since we last spoke, um, NatWest has been kind of, I suppose, upping its work to provide green loans to small businesses. Obviously, you're working with uh, larger firms too, but I, I just want to ask about that, since we, we're talking about some you know community aspects and, and, and the like. I mean, why is it important to target uh, SMEs as well as the larger firms. It's, it's a, it, seem, it might seem counterintuitive to some, I suppose, but, but clearly there's a, there's a lot of SMEs out there. Yeah, well, there's an, a, the SMEs really, uh, I think it's 86% of them in, in some of our research wanted to commit to a sustainable future, but less than half of them knew what to do. So with uh, some of our discounted lending, they can use the use of proceeds for investment in uh, things that are going to reduce their carbon footprint. Um, and I think this is just the beginning because we're not just discounting it for the sake of it. We're discounting it because we think that those businesses are going to be the ones with the lowest longer-term credit risk because of their commitment to sustainability. And there's been some work done around that showing how the level of defaults of high ESG SMEs is much lower than the uh, level of uh, defaults for ones that are less engaged with uh, sustainability. So it makes sense from the point of our balance sheet as well as uh, for the benefits of our customers. So we're really excited about launching that. We've uh, we've got some uh, great sectors that we can focus on, uh, whether that's in the agricultural sector or in the manufacturing sector or in, in uh, real estate as well. And I think that's going to make a major contribution to getting us onto the journey to decarbonize the economy. Superb. And I'll just take a step back, if I may, Ben. I, mean, I, asked, I asked James there about how this, uh, these geopolitical issues could help, perhaps help galvanise NatWest. I, I'm assuming, you know, it, it does it help illustrate um, to perhaps outsiders the, the importance of the kind of technologies that, that you're looking at, if people can point to the gas price crisis and, and, and other uh, issues such as that and to kind of realise, oh, well, we need this, we need to be backing it. Yes, I mean, the, the danger is always that anyone can put a spin on bad news in any way. And so anyone who's interested in the status quo could always say something that is saying that we're moving too fast, for example. And we are moving fast, but the reality is that we do have to move away from these sorts of um, sources of instability, you know, this personal opinion now, and guarantee as much as possible energy security and uh, and, and, and reliability of, of, of the resources that we have available to us. I just want to ask, I mean, clearly this this remains a, a COP26 uh, podcast. Um, it feels like a, it feels like a while ago now. We're now we're now kind of three months after the end of COP26, assuming my um, calendar hasn't failed me. Hmm. Um, it, it does feel that we're a, a long way off and I mean, we've been kind of building this as the most important climate summit in history. And 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 I just I just wondered if I could get perhaps both of your reflections on that. I mean, how do you look back on it 
with a bit of space and a bit of time. I think we we spoke before, James, about how this perhaps didn't achieve everything that was hoped for, but there was good work done. But you know, now the dust has settled. How do you look back on that particular conference? Well, it's interesting, isn't it, Alistair? Because both the Alok Sharma and John Kerry have really reminded us that we have to stick to the commitments that we made at COP. And uh, I think Alok Sharma said that the one and a half degrees is alive, but the pulse is weak. Mm. I, and I think some of that's true. But I think at the same time, we're really seeing a, a huge amount of engagement with our customer base, really wanting to uh, make big steps forward in terms of uh, shifting from their current emissions to the emissions that they need to have in the future. And I think the banking sector, which came together through GFANS, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, is a great example of how finance is going to uh, engage in that transition. I think uh, it's easy to stall and we need to just constantly remind ourselves that the urgency is there. We haven't got time to waste, but also the opportunities around it because people like Ben are finding really interesting solutions that uh, we can all be part of. Uh, I'll put that to your, yourself as well, uh, Ben, just off the back of those comments. I mean, what, what what did you make of, of COP26 whilst it was going on? And, and yeah, looking back on it, how, how do you reflect on that particular conference? I confess I didn't actually take part. I, I didn't <laughs> go up. Um, I was buried in project work and uh, various other things on the ground, but I was following it. And it, I, I feel like every, uh, especially as we get closer to the sort of crucial dates and, and crucial sort of increases in temperature, everyone, every, every one of these will be the, the, the most important as we as we have them, you know, sort of the last, last chance. And that sort of comment will be said again and again, I'm sure, in different ways. I'm, I'm a bit torn by, by it, you know, sort of, I think it was clearly a positive. I do feel that different sorts of geopolitical tensions maybe the shadow cast by previous uh, US president or the need for industrializing nations to protect their economies or other things which are sort of typical of, of um, reasons to go more slowly in some countries and some regions causing some challenges. But then when I look at the data, I, I am pretty encouraged. I mean, as we, as we look at, just in the context of looking at energy storage as a global opportunity uh, in due course, I'm amazed how far along a lot of countries have come in terms of their percentage of electricity generation from renewables. So that's pretty encouraging, which then unlocks the need for energy storage. So it's, of course, exciting for us commercially. Uh, that being said, it's the next step that I, I worry about, you know, that the step when the, the countries you know, move past subsidies for electricity and crucially, electricity is not the whole story or it is the whole story, but we need to move towards electricity. And so what I'm referring to is moving away from you know, petrol and gas and dare I say coal for heating in some countries. And, and the rate at which that's happening is exciting, but is also relatively slow. You know, it depends how much urgency you feel the whole process requires, but because cars can roll around on a road for a long time, the replacement rate is relatively low. So even if the percentage of cars sold as EVs goes up a lot, the rate at which the whole fleet is transforming is relatively slow. But that being said, at least those countries which are most industrialized are those that are seeing the fastest growth in, in things like that. But you know there are challenges still around heat. The EV is, is a challenge. The, the, dare I say the supply chain in batteries is a challenge mm. because of its its impact on EV growth, not so much um, energy storage uh, growth. 
Um, and the greatest issue there is really at the mining end of things, at least today it is. So m mixed feelings as in, I wonder if enough was done, but clearly always, obviously positive steps and the underlying technologies, you know, a lot of it don't require too much further government involvement, fortunately. And, and just, just, just to round us off a little bit, uh, we spoke already about the need for this, I suppose, this integrated approach to the energy system. I suppose that would be in the UK as well as overseas. I suppose to, to both of you as well, because we, we, we've got plenty of listeners in, in the renewable sector. We also have listeners in the oil and gas sector. What role do fossil fuels have to play in the UK energy system in the next kind of, at least the coming years, I suppose? Because we, we, there's a lot of debate right now about waning ourselves off oil and gas, but how, how urgently we do that, as you kind of allude to, remains uh, up in the air. It's a very good question. Um, clearly, fossil fuels are going to play a huge role in, in the UK um, economy for, for, for quite some time. Uh, possibly oil in the UK specifically, where we're adopting EVs very quickly. But again, as I said earlier, even if we've got half our cars coming from EVs, but we're only selling a couple of million a year or even less than that, um, and we've got sort of 25 to 30 million cars on the road, it's going to take a while. But we should get close to the target if you include hybrids as contributors to part of the solution um, by 2030, 35. Um, so, so oil will probably demand will probably come off fairly quickly. Um, in the same way that we've already seen that happen in diesel, interestingly. Mm -hmm. um, but when it comes to natural gas, you know, this most homes are still heated with natural gas. Adding a bit of hydrogen to that mix, I think, is it's not really a solution. Um, you know, most of that hydrogen is not um, green hydrogen, and so we, we need to really wean ourselves off um, all forms of gas and non-green hydrogen if if that does end up being part of the mix of what goes down a pipe. And you know, if if, if I had one area of concern in terms of rate of change, it's the lack of, and curiously, a lack of support for technologies in the home, you know, whether it's even subsidized, and I know it hasn't worked very well, so maybe it needs some thought, but, you know, subsidizing or some way supporting just simple things like secondary glazing and mm. at the risk of sounding like someone from Insulate Britain. I mean, it is a, it's a big, it's a very important topic, you know, sort of what I am excited about in that context is the rate of technological change in um, heat pumps. You know, mm. it's, people talk about heat pumps not being able to produce temperatures that are good enough for for water boilers and so on that's no longer true and and they're improving and so there probably will be a what i would describe as an s curve as we're seeing in renewables and then in batteries and in, obviously in evs and so on and we'll see that in heat pumps but i do worry that it's going to be quite lagged versus all the other areas and so as a result of that gas in particular will will play a, a very significant role in how we consume energy for for quite some time and and therein lies the challenge for net zero I think it's really interesting, Alistair, as well, to contemplate the raw materials and the ingredients for battery storage as well. I mean, obviously, we're looking at lithium. Uh, a lot of that comes from Chile, cobalt from DRC, but we've got lithium uh, mines opening up in the UK down in Cornwall. But I was reading the other day that um, one of the key ingredients for the anode to coat the anode to let the uh, electricity to flow as effectively as possible is coke uh, combined with graphite so that you get uh, a good uh, conductor on the anode and that coke currently comes from uh, refineries which are producing at the bottom of the refinery stack bitumen and coke uh, which is then going to be processed as part of the battery technology of the future so 
that's why I think it's it's such an important approach to think about this as a system issue and how do we kind of combine these things together as a really genuinely complicated problem that we can bring uh, the best minds to and, and mobilize as quickly and as effectively as, as we possibly can around it and get the finance to, uh, to support it. And, and I think if we can do that, we can uh, really, with the battery technology is a, is a brilliant example, but it'll apply in other areas like heat pumps, as Ben says. But I think I was watching that same report uh, as perhaps you were, uh, James, but uh, fantastic. I think that is as good a spot as we can to leave it on. Um, and that is it for this latest edition of the Cop Shop. So thank you to James and to Ben for joining me. Listeners, please let us know your thoughts on what we've discussed through our social media channels or by emailing outloud at energyvoice.com. And don't forget that every week the Energy Voice team get together to highlight important stories from the world of energy in our regular podcast episodes. For now, thank you so much for listening. I've been Alistair Thomas. See you next time. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com. Sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Outloud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Outloud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.